This week for our sermon, we're in Daniel chapter 8. You can turn to page 745 to find this passage, and we'll, we'll read it in a few minutes. If you've been following along with our series through Daniel, then you know that the book of Daniel has a lot to say about kings, but not only kings, but even empires. So in the lifespan of Daniel that we've seen in the book, we've seen the rise of Nebuchadnezzar and the fall of Jerusalem to him, and then we've seen the rise of the Persian Empire and the fall of the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persians under Cyrus the Great. Daniel personally lived through these kind of seismic changes of empire. But God also gives him insight through visions of more seismic changes. He will see in visions how the Persians will fall to the Greeks and seems like probably how the Greeks will fall to the Romans, although they're not named. As we've looked at these visions, sometimes we've been able to see with some clarity who he's likely referring to, and then other times the prophecies have been more general and difficult to pin down. But in today's passage, where we find another vision of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, God provides him with a vision and with some specific names to go with the vision. In this vision, Daniel is transported to a city called Susa, which will become one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire, so the, the empire that succeeds the Babylonian one. He'll see in that vision a powerful ram who appears unstoppable, and then he'll see a goat come in and stop the unstoppable ram. Let's go ahead and pause there and read the vision, Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. 
and it will throw the truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So as we see, this ram is unstoppable until he isn't. He's taken down by this even more powerful one-horned goat charging from the west. When the angel Gabriel interprets the vision, which we'll read in a second, he tells Daniel that the ram, the first creature, represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, led by Cyrus the Great at first, and the goat represents the Greeks, who first conquered Persia under the leadership of Alexander the Great. The main focus of the vision is of this Greek king and his successors, represented by the, at first the great horn, and then the great horn breaks into four, and then the little horn emerges. Scholars are united, and this, this goes to whether they're scholars who are more like us and conservative evangelicals and those who have more doubts about the truthfulness of God's word. They're united in believing that chapter 8 first talks about the swift domination of Alexander the Great, who swept through the known world from 335 to 323 B.C., so a couple of hundred years after this prophecy was given and written down. Most importantly for Daniel 8, Alexander conquered the Persian Empire, and then the vision zeroes in on Alexander's successors. As so happens in Daniel so many times that we should come to expect it, if somebody rises up and becomes great, in a few years they're going to be struck down. And that's what happens here. Alexander dies, his kingdom is divided up because his children are old enough to receive it and they're actually done away with. And four kings emerge in its place and the, the kingdom is divided up. So we, we still know about some of these kingdoms, uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies in Egypt. The Seleucids are the one that we're going to focus on. That seems to be the, the little horn that the prophecy speaks of. Zeroes in on this little horn because this little horn turns its attention to the glorious land, which is a way to refer to the land of Israel. This king is described in verse 23 as a king of bold face who will rise up against God himself. Seems to be variously described as the prince of the hosts or the prince of princes. So with that in mind, let's read the interpretation that Daniel sought and was given beginning in verse 15. So just like in the last chapter, we have the vision and then the interpretation. Same pattern here. Let's read beginning in verse 15. Incidentally, this is the first time that an angel is named in the Bible. It's the angel Gabriel, the same angel who will deliver the news about Christ's birth in the New Testament. Listen to God's word from chapter 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will, make you know, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. 
As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men, and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. One interesting thing here is about Daniel falling asleep, right? He does this kind of almost repeatedly. It seems strange, but then when you think about it, when you look at scripture and how people encounter God, they often fall into deep sleeps. So Genesis 15 when Abraham has the vision of the fire pots flashing through the pieces of animals, he's in a deep sleep. And what does Peter do and the other disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration? They fall into a deep sleep. And likewise, uh, Ezekiel seems to have a similar experience. They're only sustained when the Lord awakes them. And this will happen to Daniel again in this book. Well, verse 23 tells us about this successor of Alexander, that he will arise at the latter end of their kingdom. And that's what these references to the end seem to indicate. Not the, the end of all history, but probably the end of this Greek empire. Because this latter end happens to coincide with the rise of the Romans. He'll destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. We read in the previous, in the vision, that this was focused on the sanctuary of Jerusalem, the temple. Well, from the history books, we know that, that there was a king who turned towards Jerusalem and as his power was being curtailed by Rome, he decided to let out his wrath against God's people. He destroyed many of God's people. He desecrated the temple. He set up an altar to Zeus in the holy place. And from, for three years, from 167 to 164 BC, he prevented Israel from worshiping God in the temple the way that they were commanded to. And he had co-opted the worship to be offered to his own image, the image of Zeus that he set up there. Historians even know the name of this king who persecuted the temple. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or his real name was Antiochus IV. He, he applied to himself this word Epiphanes, which itself was a blasphemous title. By itself, the word Epiphanes means appears or is revealed. The real function in his title was he had stamped on his coins, King Antiochus, God manifest. He clearly has a great sense of his own power and importance. Daniel chapter 8 and the part of, Daniel, part of Daniel chapter 11 are focused on the terror that Antiochus Epiphanes brings upon Jerusalem. But a big question is, is why? Why does God care to tell us about this in Daniel? Why is this prophecy here? Why is this given so much attention, right? And the angel Gabriel is here, right? It seems that there's even a, an appearance of God himself as the voice between the banks, a voice kind of hovering over the waters, gives Gabriel a command. It's the voice of God saying, Gabriel, tell Daniel what this means. 
You know, you'd think we could happily live the Christian life without any knowledge of these events that happened in around the year 160 BC. Why did Daniel need to hear this, and why should we study it? We're going to try to work through two reasons why, two big lessons God has for us from the blasphemy and the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. The two points are pretty simple. First, that God knows and reveals the future. And two, God is at work when all seems lost. God knows and reveals the future, and God is at work when all seems lost. This first lesson, that God knows and reveals the future, may, may seem too obvious to even mention for us, right? We operate with this understanding, right? And, and if we've been reading Daniel, we should especially know this, right? God's been revealing the future all throughout this book as he's interpreted the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar have had. So perhaps it's too obvious, but perhaps it's a difficult lesson for people to learn. How often do you worry about the future? Do you ever struggle with forgetting that God has made promises to you of eternal life? Do you ever feel hopeless and neglect the wonderful truth that God knows and holds your future? Maybe God keeps telling us that he knows and reveals the future because we keep forgetting it. We need constant reminders. See, the God of Scripture is not limited by time. Last week in chapter 7, he's called the Ancient of Days. He's outside of time. He made time. And so for God, there's no past or future. There's nothing outside of his knowledge. Our past and our future are perfectly known to him. And this is true for us as individuals, but it's also true for the whole world. All the events of this world are known and orchestrated by God. God doesn't just know the future like a fortune teller might, if those really exist. He knows the future because he creates the future. It all happens by his providential hand. Again, this has been a repeated theme throughout the book of Daniel as God's worked through these visions to foretell what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar and to the world, to Belshazzar. He knows the future. By reading the book of Daniel, the exiles who return from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple can know that their future is in God's hand. Again, they're never going to reclaim the greatness and glory they had under David and Solomon. Their, their future is always going to feel more precarious, on the edge of, of being wiped off the face of the earth as, as world empires just sweep through Jerusalem. But they will know when all seems lost, when the temple is desecrated again, that they have not reached the end of God's knowledge. They're not outside God's plan. God knows the future. And he reveals the future to his people. Are you getting a bit uncomfortable now? God reveals the future to his people? Is Pastor Kyle going to go into full prophecy mode and tell you what's going to happen? You don't need to worry. I don't have any specific prophetic words for any of you. That's not what I mean when I say that God reveals the future. But there are future things that God has said will happen in a way similar to what God predicts for Daniel. Here, God predicts the rise of a cunning, boastful king who will terrorize God's people 
who will attempt to fight against God's own truth, who will seek to disrupt the worship of God, but he won't prevail. He'll pass away. The sanctuary and worship will be restored, we're told. Even if Daniel doesn't understand the details, and it's clear at the end he doesn't, he knew in broad strokes what will happen. Can't we say something similar? Until Jesus returns, there will be people with great power who oppose God. There will be persecution for God's people. But we are promised by Jesus himself, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus is coming again. The dead will be raised, either to eternal life or to everlasting judgment. Now, Christians who love the Bible disagree on the precise shape of these details, how much granularity the scripture has given us about the future. But we all agree on the basics that God knows the future. He's revealed it to us, and Jesus is coming again. We may not talk about it in these terms, but the truth that God knows and reveals the future is an essential Christian doctrine. The Christian faith is built on God's revelation about the future. So just think about this. The work that Christ did in the past on the cross, from our vantage point now, it's in the past, is so that sinners can enjoy a future with God. We press on in faith and love because God has told us about our future. We hold fast to the end looking for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We could cite number of passages over and over again in the New Testament where God reveals the future. I'm just going to read one from 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. What are we doing We've received promises of God about the future, and we are waiting for those promises to come true. There's no way really to be a Christian without faith in these promises, faith in the gift of eternal life. Yes, the eternal life that we enjoy now by the power of the Spirit, but eternal life that we will see in fulfillment in the future. This is why we preach the gospel, don't we? Because we know about the future. We know that the future for those who continue in unbelief is eternal punishment away from the blessed presence of God. Hell is real. We know that it's coming in the future. It's real now and it has a real reality for our friends and neighbors. And we seek to persuade people to trust in Christ because there's a hope for a true future of life with God. Our faith is built upon this idea that God knows and reveals the future to his people. I wonder if you spend much time meditating on this. And one of the, the glorious things about great hymns is that they cast our mind forward to the future, right? Think There's so many wonderful hymns that that's where they end up. It, it is well is one of them, right? At the, at the last day when the trump shall resound, it will be well for my soul, Right? But it won't be well for everybody's soul. Do you get what a wonderful thing it is to profess that when Jesus appears in his glory and might, it will be well for your soul? 
It can be well for your soul because your sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Our faith is a faith that's built on Christ's work in the past for the sake of the future, our future with God. So we believe that God knows and reveals the future. Not every detail about the future, not the things that, that if you had the chance, you might go and ask a fortune teller about, right? Not who you should marry or what jobs you should take. Rather, God's gift to us in the knowledge of the future is about his unshakable promises of life in Christ. We have to admit that even in this case, Daniel gets more details about his future, or at least the future of God's people, than we know. We don't know the kingdoms that will arise. Yet even so, what God has told us is good news, and it's essential for our faith. We can endure in the future because God knows our future, and he has revealed it to us. Number one, God knows the future. Number two, God is at work when all seems lost. When we read this prediction in Daniel chapter 8, it's easy to miss the weightiness of this prophecy for Daniel and those who would follow him. Remember, when Daniel receives this prophecy, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There is hardly a Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar has made sure that it's wiped off the face of the earth. Brother Glenn read that for us, right? About the, the, the temple being burned. Men are just in there like, like foresters swinging their hatchets, destroying all that they can destroy. We'll see in chapter 9 that Daniel had read the prophet Jeremiah. So he had a hope of a restoration of the people of God, but he would not personally live to see it, at least not in all its fullness. Perhaps he lives to the, the declaration from Cyrus to return but he doesn't live to see the fullness of the rebuilding. So, so just picture this. He's being told by God, there is this time in the future where there is now a temple. There is the sacrifices of the morning and evening sacrifice. But there's going to arise this arrogant, deceitful king. A king who is cunning and crafty like the serpent in the garden. And he will successfully overthrow God's sanctuary. He will bring it down. He will throw truth to the ground. Even the holy ones of heaven ask, how long will this go on? It's a devastating vision. After all that Israel's been through, after the Babylonian exile, now Daniel is told, what you're going through is not the end. Wait, there's more. And in a sense, it's worse. More persecution, more destruction to come. You might think, well, this is happening many days from now. Daniel doesn't have to worry about this himself. But as someone who loves God's people, in some ways, I think to be told that this is happening many days from now is, is in some ways worse news. Imagine your own life. Don't you sometimes console yourself? Well, I'm going through a struggle now, but it's, it's going to get better. You know, maybe uh, I know my finances are tight right now, but I know we're going to get established in our career, and, you know, it's going to get better. One day the, the kids will be out of the house, and we're going to be starting saving our money, and we're going to have lots more, right? But imagine being told things will get better. You will get those promotions, 
But in your 60s, it's all going to fall apart. You're going to be utterly ruined for a few years there. Right? We'd probably just rather not know that is going to happen. That's, that's kind of what Daniel has promised here. It's going to get better. The temple's going to be rebuilt. But then there's going to become a time when the, when the thing is going to be made desolate again. An abomination is going to be set up there. People will be deceived. It's going to get ugly. So it's not just that there will be another king marching through Jerusalem. It's not just that many of God's people will be killed. The vision says that this will be an intense spiritual opposition. We have to admit there's some hard language to understand, but the king will rise up against the prince of princes seems to indicate this king is ready to take on God himself. He says he will throw down God's truth. The book of 1 Maccabees, which is an extra-canonical book, it's not part of the Old Testament, it tells us a story, the story of this desecration and the rebellion that results after it on the part of the Jews, the rebellion against King Antiochus. And in that book, we're told that the persecution was such by Antiochus that the scrolls of the Torah that were discovered were shredded and burned, and that if you were a Jew found possessing one of those scrolls, you were put to death. This is the severity of the persecution against God's people. And we're told this king is successful. He's successful and he's cunning. From the history of this period, we knew that Israel was already in a bad state. There were already big internal divisions within Israel, some Israelites trying to accommodate and make compromises with Greek culture and already trying to leave the law of God. It appears from what we can tell that Antiochus convinced some Israelites to go along with his desecration of the temple. So he doesn't just stop the worship of the temple. He replaces the true priests with his own false priests to conduct worship in God's temple. And Jews were going along with this. So he aggravates and intensifies divisions among the people of God. I say all that just to say that so the spiritual blindness and sin of God's people is part of this story. It's not highlighted so much in Daniel, but it's there. So as much as this is a picture of persecution from without, it's a picture of rot and rebellion from within Israel. It may be that the transgressors spoken of in verse 23, the end of the transgressors, may refer to Israelites. This will be kind of a, a judgment of God brought upon them for their sin. The picture could hardly be worse. And it's no wonder that Daniel's reaction is to be completely overcome. He lies sick for days before he can resume his duties for the king. And yet, as bad as things are, it's temporary. Right? When the angels ask how long, they're given a number, 2,300 evenings and mornings, referring to the number of evening and morning sacrifices that were missed in the temple. After this time, verse 14 says, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And in verse 25, we're told that this king, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Partly that means he dies from natural causes, not in battle, but partly it recalls how God's kingdom arises from the stone in chapter 2, cut by no human hand. God will bring him down just as God allowed him to rise to power. So this time will be very dark, 
It may very well seem to those who live through it that the worst has happened, but it will end. God is at work. God will restore the sanctuary to its rightful state. When all seems lost, God has not lost control. He's still at work. He'll restore things to their rightful state. Now, it's tempting to take that truth and say, well, that's a great nugget of truth. So I'm just going to apply it to my life. And we should. We can remember this in our dark times. God's at work. But before we get there, we should take a minute to think about where else we find a time like this in the history of God's people. Where do we find a foreign kingdom in control of Jerusalem? Where do we find divisions and great spiritual blindness among God's people? Where do we find both Jews and Gentiles rising up in pride and in cunning against God himself? The devastation and darkness under Antiochus Epiphanes are like a practice run for the opposition that Jesus faced. This is something I think we need to grasp. We read the apocalyptic prophecies of Daniel and then later in Revelation, we're struck by their images and languages, dragons and horns and beasts. There's this phrase that we'll come to later in Daniel, the abomination of desolation. I mean, that's a very menacing combination of syllables, isn't it? Abomination of desolation. It just sounds bad to say. We wonder, what could it refer to? But as we're speculating about what that means, we forget that we have recorded for us in the Gospels something much more abominable and sacrilegious and blasphemous. And that's the crucifixion of the Son of God. There's something much worse for store in store for Daniel's people than Antiochus Epiphanes. And that is that the Lord will visit his people, he will come to his own, and his own will not receive him. He will proclaim repentance and salvation to them, but they will be so deceived that they'll accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil. They will hate him and scheme to kill him. They will falsely accuse him and plead their case before Pilate so that they have a chance to crucify him. This was a truly desperate time for the people of God. I mean, just look at the accounts and the way the disciples react to Christ's arrest and crucifixion. They scatter, they mourn, they're devastated. But we know that at this very, very dark place in the history of God with his people, God was most powerfully at work. God worked through the sins of Pilate and the sins of the Jewish leaders. Through the crucifixion of Christ, salvation comes. Sin is paid for. The power of death and hell is broken for those who believe. So the crucifixion of Christ is both the greatest perversion of worship that has ever been. And yet through it, it allows for the restoration of worship. True worship can happen because of this abomination that was perpetrated against the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't stay dead. He's, he rose from the dead. We might borrow from the language of Daniel 8.14 and say, after three days in the tomb, the sanctuary was restored to its rightful state. Right? Where does Jesus go after he dies? He raises from the dead and he ascends to heaven 
to God's sanctuary. And he makes provision for us for our sin so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. The sanctuary has been restored after this terrible dark night perpetrated by evil men. That's what Betty read for us earlier. So the great desecration is to trample on the blood of Christ. But the great restoration is found in Christ, dead, buried, risen, and ascended. This is the amazing news at the heart of the gospel, that God was at work through human evil so that evil humans can be saved by faith in the work of Christ. And it's because of this glorious truth that we can apply the lesson of Daniel 8 to ourselves. We don't say, well, all seems lost, you know, God's at work in some vague, generic way. We say it because we know we have life and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took our punishment on the cross. Because Jesus was desecrated. We can say God is at work. He died and rose again. God at work is not a platitude that we offer. It's a reality because Jesus is our man in heaven, ever living to make intercession for us at the right hand of God the Father. As I read Daniel 8 and thought about the desecration of the temple and what a, what a burden and a grief that would have been for a faithful Israelite, it struck me that we are blessed not to have a temple in Jerusalem anymore. As long as there is a building in Jerusalem where worship is centered, worship can be disrupted by evil kings, can't it? Another Antiochus Epiphanes can come in and take his hatchets to it. But we have a high priest in heaven's throne room. The true temple is in heaven where Jesus is, and nothing can attack Jesus or tear him down. He is untouchable. Nothing can thwart Jesus in his high priestly work. There's no abomination of desolation that can enter that place. He's unassailable. He is unstoppable. Because he is there in heaven, pleading our case at the throne of God, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to fear no more anyone like Antiochus Epiphanes disrupting the worship of God. Now, it is true that evil rulers can attack the saints, and they will. It seems that one of the points of Daniel, with both its specificity and its generalizations, is to establish a pattern that evil rulers follow who oppose God's people. We might call this the spirit of Antichrist, revealed in Daniel that will persist until Christ comes. The spirit of pride, the spirit of blasphemy, cunning deceit, and sometimes devastating violence. It's true that some who call themselves Christians will be deceived and they'll pervert the true worship of God. The book of Daniel and the rest of Scripture are very honest about the, the dangers that God's people face in the world. We are opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. This has been true in history, it's true today, and it will be true until Jesus comes back. But on the other hand, we know that the desecration that happened in the 2nd century B.C. can't happen again because our hope is safe in heaven. 
So we have kind of a steely-eyed realism about the dangers we face and an unshakable hope because of where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. We may be opposed. We may see brothers and sisters destroyed by violent and evil men, but our hope is untouchable. And so we pray for God to rise up and work justice and to preserve us until Christ returns. And that gets us to the way that these truths call us to live our lives today. How do we live in light of the truths of Daniel 8? For one thing, it means that we're clear that this world is not our home. It's full of suffering and persecution. We are not living to build up for ourselves a paradise here and now. Are you clear about that? If you look at the way you spend your time and your money, what does that say about where your hope is or where your home is? What is your heart set on? Are you putting your hope in this world? Daniel 8 says we cannot put our hope in this world. Rather, we're to remember that our hope is in heaven where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We know that we may have deep sorrow. Some of us may be going through deep sorrow. We, we can be sorrowful, but we're never finally devastated. We cry out often with the holy ones, How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will we suffer? How long will those we're sharing the gospel with be blind to it? We may not get answers to our how long besides the answer of Christ is coming again and he will make all things right. One of the most important things we have to learn as Christians is to learn how to suffer well. I wonder if you have a sense of that. Do you know the difference of when you're suffering well or when you're suffering with anger and resentment. I believe the Lord intends to teach us this difference. One of the things he wants to teach us as we grow in Christians is this difference of how to suffer. And one way we can learn to suffer well is by learning the language of lament I just spoke about. How long, O oh Lord? To state our problems clearly to the Lord and, and plead with him, to bring them to him, ask him to put things right, and express our faith in him. So you can learn this language of lament from the Psalms. You can learn it from Christ. You can learn it throughout the scriptures. Scriptures are full of faithful people lamenting life in a broken and sinful world. When we lament, we direct our suffering towards God. We have to admit, too, that we need help to do this. One way we can seek that help is by telling the wise Christians in our lives about the ways that we struggle. If you don't ever share those things, it's very likely that you're going to continue suffering without faith. Other Christians can sometimes see into your suffering with more clarity than you can. And they can lovingly point you to Christ in the midst of your suffering. It's very hard to learn to suffer well as a Christian when no one knows how we're suffering, when we keep our suffering to ourselves. Finally, these lessons of Daniel should teach us to pray. 
When you read through the book of Daniel, one of the repeated themes is Daniel was a man of prayer. He sought the Lord, right? And in Daniel chapter 6, what's he doing? He's intentionally, openly praying. But he consistently goes to the Lord in prayer. If we come back next week, what we're going to find is Daniel goes to the Lord in prayer. One of the most beautiful prayers of confession you'll find in the Bible is Daniel chapter 9. A sober-minded look at the future, like Daniel gives us in Daniel chapter 8, reminds us that we desperately need God's help. We are not going to survive and thrive in this life if we try to do so in our own strength. There will be times when all seems lost. A sober-minded look at ourselves reveals our sin. It reveals the rebellion that still remains in our own heart. So instead of despairing, Daniel would teach us to pray. Confessing the sin to God in our own hearts. Expressing our faith in the provision of Christ. Our trust that he is exalted at God's right hand. That he does hold our future. When faced with the realities of a terrifying world, God has given us the joy of prayer. I was reading a book this week that reminded me of the goodness of God in giving us prayer. And he said two things are true about the gospel and Christ's love for us. First, that Christ shares his own mind with us. You can see this in Philippians chapter 2, that we have the mind of Christ in us. That we have the mind of Christ in us in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. And that Jesus calls us his friends in the Gospel of John because he's told us all that the Father has told him. Jesus shares himself with us and he desires for us to share ourselves with him. To make our requests known to him. To pray. To pour out our hearts to God. Daniel chapter 8 encourages us in that way. God knows your future. He's even revealed parts of your future to you. And God is at work when all seems lost. The death and resurrection of Christ is the permanent signpost telling you God is at work in your life. He has not abandoned you. When you come to the end of your life, there yet remains hope because Christ is alive in heaven. And so don't make this world your home, but pray. Cry out to God. Endure in faith. Walk together, arm in arm, towards your Savior who is in heaven. And know that nothing can separate you from God's love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that there are even these strange passages in the Bible that are hard to understand and yet full of profound truth. We pray for your help to embrace these things. We pray for eyes to see the glory of the risen Christ, that he died and rose again for our sake, and that he lives now at your right hand, making intercession for us. Father, give us grace to walk arm in arm toward Christ. Help us to share our burdens with each other and to point each other to Christ. We pray that at the end we would be found faithful, that we would endure, and we would not forsake Christ.
the only Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.